All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Akira Kurosawa once said, It is power of memory that gives rise to the power of imagination. So when is the last time you've had a dream in black and white? When is the last time your memories or imagination were limited to the grayscale? If motion pictures are limited to sound and images, then without color, filmmakers are bound to a false reality set by the technology of their time. This is a limitation we cannot discredit black and white films for, but instead something to honor them with, as the filmmakers excelled beyond the technical limitations to create memorable moving images. With the introduction to color in films, we take another leap forward into the history of not just the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, but to the industry as a whole. The Technicolor Motion Picture Corporation was founded in Boston by a physicist and photography pioneer, Dr. Herbert Kalmus, in 1912. He incorporated the company officially in 1915 with his business partners Daniel Frost Comstock and W. Burton Westcott, and oversaw the production of the first Technicolor feature, The Gulf Between, in 1917. Technicolor invested time into researching the impact of color on emotion and developing a new three-color process which could provide full-spectrum entertainment. The new cameras were bulky, containing three separate reels. A prism split the light into cyan, magenta, and yellow. Each separate reel was used to create a positive copy called a matrix. The final result mixed the primary colors to create a full-spectrum image. Just like the talkies in the late 20s, we are introduced to a new film format the industry is not fully prepared to embrace, with many theaters only accepting black and white films because projectors that played color films were quite costly, especially with the limited number of color films being produced at the time. The studios were willing to adopt Technicolor for live-action feature productions if it could be proved viable. Shooting Technicolor required very bright lighting, as the film had an extremely slow speed of ASA 5. That and the bulk of cameras and the lack of experience with three-color cinematography made for skepticism in the studio boardrooms. It wasn't until Kalmus convinced Walt Disney to shoot one of the Disney cartoons, Flowers and Trees, in 1932, in the three-strip Technicolor process that we noticed the industry starting to shift. Seeing the potential in full color, Disney negotiated an exclusive contract for the use of the process in animated films that extended to September 1935. Flowers and Trees was successful with audience and critics alike, and won the first Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film in 1932. So Ben, I wanted to start off this conversation kind of opening it up and uh, this is our first color picture for Best Pictures and uh, the Academy honoring a color film in the uh, outstanding production category. So I wanted to ask generally and broadly, what does color, not in just film, but just color and Technicolor mean to you? Well, Technicolor specifically, to me, it represents a style of filmmaking and well, maybe not a style necessarily, but it represents a, a form of the art that it takes color and it fantasizes it is kind of what I want to say it does. And, and it does that by, by making it real, but it takes that little, little sliver of a fantasy and, and the stuff that isn't reality and it opens up the world and it creates something really beautiful in film. And so when you watch Technicolor films, you re like it just pops out in your face. There's this surreal realism is a way to also phrase it. It's, it's really cool and, and beautiful to watch. And it's, and it's important to talk about with this film that we are going to be discussing about in this episode because of the advancements that it made and just how vibrant it 
was it's well more at the beginning of the film but it was a very specific it was specifically used for this film and it was used to great lengths and really successfully it's a two-parter question so you have the technicolor aspect and then just color and film since this is our first color film not just technicolor but first color film altogether so technicolor kind of reminds me of uh, classics a lot of musicals old western films like singing in the rain and fantasia which is some of my favorite movies just alone and the vibrant beautiful colors that like are so exaggerated and unnatural in a way that it's just creates this like alternate reality that you're kind of stuck in and I think that works so well with Gone with the Wind and musicals and this kind of like alternate space and reality that you're in for these movies because they're they're just so heightened and just big and then on the other side bringing color films finally into this mix it's it's something that kind of brings you more into reality when you're watching a film. And it's not just coming from like the modern point of view or when we think of movies nowadays, they're always in color because the amount of black and white films released every year are probably under what 5%, if that. So it's, it's this weird mix of where Technicolor is so beyond what you would like expect and see in reality, but then having this color aspect, finally getting to the point where we're seeing color films, it's, it makes us feel just more used to what we're seeing on screen. It just feels a little bit more natural, and it's finally introducing this new element that changes the medium entirely. It really can provoke such a different mood, and I think Gone with the Wind is like the perfect film to represent this because of its insane use of colors that we'll talk about. And I wanted to quickly mention the uh, ASA 5, which was like the film speed or the stock speed. There's a bunch of different names, and I love uh, film photography, so I found that kind of insane because ASA ASA 5 is extremely extremely low. Nowadays if you were to buy film and you were to buy like a pack of film for 35mm it would be like 100 ASA and they would say use that film on bright sunny days like if you're shooting on the beach and that's 100 ASA so the amount of light that you would need for 5 ASA I like don't understand how it's possible. It was probably like blinding to be on these sets yeah. for Technicolor that it was probably like just awful to work in. For those who don't know what ASA means, can you just give like a good explanation? In terms of ASA, it's probably what you would refer to nowadays as ISO. So on modern cameras or even your phone, you would have the ability to kind of change the ISO, essentially how sensitive that uh, chip or how sensitive the film speed or the film stock itself that you're using is sensitive to light. So this means that it's the lower the number, the way, way, way less it is sensitive to light. So 100 being really bright and sunny on like a beach. So really high extreme light with not many shadows. So you would use a much lower film stock. So thinking about five is is just so drastically low. It's just something you would never see in the modern age when it comes to like film and physical photography. Yeah. And, and it becomes interesting because we'll touch upon more of the what color can repre- represent in Gone with the Wind. But Specifically, the second half of the film, to my eye, seems a little darker and doled out. So, you know, how dark were they able to get the sets? Like, how many lights? There's so many questions with this production. Um, So it's just something to think about. And But what I really liked of of what you said was, when have you dreamed in black and white? And and to me, that's what what color film really represents. It, It brings you into reality. You don't dream in black and white. The the medium of filmmaking, the artistry of it, yeah, like black and white is a great tool because it can challenge you. But being able to use color gives you gave filmmakers and it gives filmmakers today the tool to 
step foot into reality to be as real as possible on film, which is a totally different nuanced conversation. But I really liked that and I like that comparison. And I think that what makes it so prevalent to talk about, to start out this conversation on color film because of Gone with the Wind is because of what it opens up or at least what has opened up because of reactions to it years and decades after its release to a whole conscious and social movement of that the that Gone with the Wind represented something that wasn't as beautiful as it was, that the reality of the film wasn't the reality of what it is today, that there is still more advancements that need to be made. And that's a whole you know societal issue, but to the fact that we have color with this film, it, it represents so many different things, racial, f- from a filmmaking standpoint, the artistry standpoint, being able to capture history. It, it, it's, uh, it's Pandora's box, but color film is, is a great thing to have. And the fact that this is the first one it is such a huge deal to the landscape of, of cinema and the history of the Oscars. So Ben, I think it's time to ask that age old question. Is Gone with the Wind worthy of the Best Picture Award for 1939? So welcome back to Worthy, episode 12. Uh, Today, this episode, whenever you are listening to this, we are talking about Gone with the Wind. And this was a pretty, at least for me, in my mindset of writing notes and getting ready for this podcast, it was a, it was a daunting task. I had seen the movie now three times. John, this was the first time you had seen it. And it is, it's well publicized. It's, a, it's one of the most well-known films ever. It is one of the most covered, if not the most covered and most documented film ever. It is has come under major scrutiny, especially in recent memory, uh, and it's a lot. It's a lot to take in and for us to give a new opinion, to give like a new insight into it, because so many people have talked about it. So many people have already given, I guess I want to say like a standard criticism, a standard critique of it, and yet it is still so revered and so well loved. So there's just so many different things to process, to take in, to form before even talking about it. And uh, if you were to see the outline that John and I have for these episodes, they're usually like 20 pages. This one is 40 pages, just to <laughs> give an idea of like how much like we, it, there is to be found about it and how much we can really take it the direction of the podcast. So as of right now, in this part of the recording process, we don't know how long this discussion is going to be, but it's going to be a fun one. And to really start it out, in 2019, this movie came under big controversy because it had appeared on HBO Max's platform, and people were pretty upset about it because there was no, I guess it was like praised, right? I, I'm trying to remember really correctly because there is like, there is not information of like the initial reaction is more information about what ha- the reaction to the reaction, and so HBO's reaction to the reaction of Gone with the Wind being on HBO Max was they took it off and then they put it it back on but with a five minute intro tcm's jacqueline stewart she's a tcm host and film scholar and basically it's just a it's a context it's giving context to the film why it was so revered in 1939 what the big issues racially there is you know jacqueline stewart yeah she says uh the film paints the picture of the antebellum south as a romantic and idyllic setting that has been tragically lost to the past and 
that is pretty much what the movie is. It's giving this beauty to the South and the Confederacy, which really doesn't deserve any beauty. It was a horrific time and a horrific moment in world history. And uh, then she ends the whole discussion, the intro, with watching Gone with the Wind can be uncomfortable, even painful. Still, it is important that classic Hollywood films are made available to us in their original form for viewing and discussion. They reflect the social context of which they were made and invite viewers to reflect on their own values and beliefs when watching them now, which, John, sounds like what we do on this podcast. Yeah, definitely. So first, I want to mention what you were first starting out with. Yes, this is Gone with the Wind. It's one of the most popular movies of all time. So I was probably the most nervous going into this episode just because not only how big of a movie this is, almost hitting four hours, and just how daunting and excessive this film has kind of been picked apart and analyzed, and especially when it's been brought up most recently with the HBO Max release. And I'm the kind of person who really doesn't want to know anything about a movie going in. Like, even reading the plot, I think, is is too much. You know, but there's films where they're heavily documented, and obviously I'm watching trailers and yada, yada, yada. But when I watch a film, and I really just don't want to know that much about it. So the the... The way of starting a film out with like dialogue of how to perceive this film is is not something that I really agree with. I think it's something that's up to the viewer to then go and like figure out for themselves whether they believe in certain aspects of the script. You know, some of the script is simply based on characters and you could argue some of this is the screenwriting and the producing side of things that's kind of forced to talk about these issues and we'll definitely dive really deep into all the crazy aspects of this film but yeah I don't know if I technically agree with opening up the film and and starting it out with this kind of declaration that this is painful to watch because again I think it should be up to each individual viewer to like know that context and there's a lot of people that would watch this film and you know maybe not look up anything else and if they watch this film and treat it as like a documentary and word from the Bible, then yeah, there's, there's something else wrong with that person. So yeah, that's I, just my opinion. It, it, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, uh, it for you for, and I'm similar to where I don't want to know anything beforehand. It It's tougher that kind of viewer to pop this movie on HBO max. than like, well, there's this whole beginning that sort of reveals a, some big plot points sort of reveals some big you know rate the the big racial issues that are going on so it spoils it it's it's a little weird yeah you can place it at the end of the film it, it is separated also it's like a separate video you can watch on hbo max as well but it's good that we have it it's good that there is this context and it's good that you have someone like jacqueline stewart who is a black woman herself saying like this you know this movie's racist and it's painful for for black viewers but we can't take away or at least we can't re-edit this film and go back. We have to leave it in its original form. We have to just watch it as it is and discuss it from there. And I think that's a huge point. And I think that's a very valuable to to understand and when when watching this film. And I I, I want to ask this question to you, John. When comparing this to another best picture best picture winner, Simran, I think this is it's still racist film, but it's not as racist as Simran was. There were some things that were done in Simran that I'm still shocked by and then watching Gone with the wind yeah it's very racist but it doesn't have an this what's supposed to be a progressive guy telling a young black kid like oh boy look at those watermelons like isn't that great you know and that's where this film doesn't do that but yet it still promotes makes slavery seem a beautiful thing (laughs) yeah it's it's a really complicated issue in this film and i think we'll discuss it more throughout throughout because 
this film relies a lot on a lot of different characters and a lot of those different characters have opposing viewpoints and I feel like that's something Simran does not have it's it felt like racist from the bones of the script like that the screenwriters felt these things and they wrote them and made the main character in Simran to kind of like fuel how they feel about black people so i don't feel Gone with the Wind is nearly as racist. It it has elements that are really uncomfortable and elements of slavery where they glorize it, like you said. But it also it talks about these issues and it really opens up dialogues about them. And I think it does it in a much nuanced effort and, and storytelling manner than Simran did. So, yeah, we don't want to pick and choose and compare all the time, but it's something to note and. It's hard to compare the two because this Gone with the Wind was put to HBO Max, a streaming platform, and Simmerin is basically a film that's not going to be seen by the majority of the people, and it's not going to be added to any streaming services. So. I actually think it's on HBO Max now because uh, my girlfriend uh, was telling me the other day she was going through HBO Max and asked me if she should watch Simmerin. I was like, no, don't don't touch that. Don't touch it at all. And uh so I, th- I think it might be on HBO Max, but, it, I, but I don't remember, and I might just be talking out of my butt. <laughs> if that is the case, that would be insane to me because that film is, is so more blatantly so racist. And, like, if there's no opening discussion about that film, then, like, it's clearly that they just did this because they it's a more popular yeah. film, more people know it, and more people just complained about it. So uh, then it makes HBO or TCM, whoever was really in charge of this, it makes it feel like less valuable and like they just did it just because they wanted people to shut up and not because they actually believe in and kind of describing the nuance here but we're not going to tell people to shut up but we are going to tell people go watch this movie you can enjoy it and like it like i like we like it but remember like the context of the time and, and remember some of that those nuances and i think that creates a healthy discussion and a healthy way to view this movie But without further ado, let's jump right into Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind stars Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara, Olivia de Havilland as Melanie Hamilton, Clark Gable as Rhett Butler, Hattie McDaniel as Mammy, and Leslie Howard as Ashley Wilkes. Gone with the Wind was produced by David O. Selznick, directed by Victor Fleming with uncredited directors George Cukor and Sam Wood. Writing credits going to Margaret Mitchell for story of her novel Gone with the Wind, screenplay by Sidney Howard, and uncredited writing to Oliver H.P. Garrett, Ben Hecht, Joe Swirling, and John Van Drutten. Music by Max Steiner. Cinematography by Ernest Haller and Lee Garms. Production design by William Cameron Menzies. Art direction by Lyle Wheeler. Costume design by Walter Plunkett. A 1939 adaptation of Margaret Mitchell's novel of the same name, Gone with the Wind is a love story about two white southerners set in the midst of the Civil War. Now we want to at least mention before going on, this will be a little bit different than most of our other episodes because usually we'll read the synopsis just to give any listeners kind of like a general understanding of what the plot is. Um, This film is almost four hours as we've said and it's so much and there's so much that happens that we thought 
it would be best to go essentially paragraph by paragraph through a synopsis and essentially break down these scenes, break down the characters as they initially start, and then kind of go throughout the film and really break it all down because there's so much to talk about here. Yeah, this film does clock in uh, at almost four hours. It is, depending on who you ask and which viewing or per uh, version. Or version that you, you would talk to, uh, this is the longest Best Picture winner. Some people say Lawrence of Arabia is. There's like a one-minute difference depending on which version you're going to use. Uh, based on my spreadsheet and logging of all this over the last year and a half, I have... Uh, Lawrence of Arabia as like one minute longer than Gone with the Wind, but still that one minute doesn't take any away from it being a almost four hour movie. So uh, yeah, let's get into it. So the opening of the movie starts out with the this credit uh, title sequence, and it says, there is a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and of slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no moment than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. I feel like we should at least just jump in and talk about the opening titles, just because yeah. they're, one, boom, we're in color. The opening production uh, and the production company is shown in color. We see the estate, which is also interesting. It's the first film that has like an opening credit to the production company with their own little like teaser reel. I don't even yeah. know what to call those really, honestly, but... It's so used to seeing that before films nowadays with the motion picture studios and Universal's opening and all these other openings. And this is just not what we've really seen so far. And then we have like the beautiful scrolling text reading out Gone with the Wind with this like burnt horizon background, which oh, is so popular so throughout this good. film. And it's, it's gorgeous to look at in color and everything is just immediately popping out to us. And we see some of the lead actors and actresses name as they kind of show parts of the plantation and go around uh, the property of Terra. Yeah. And a little bit on actually where the name Gone with the Wind comes from. So uh, Margaret Mitchell, the woman who wrote the novel, she took it from a poem called, and I, again, like I'm not, uh, I'm not good with, with different languages and I've done this before, but I'm going to try it again. I think this is Latin. It is non sum qualis uram bon sub regno sayonar by Ernest Dawson. And basically that, poem translates to i have forgot much sayonara gone with the wind flung roses roses righteously with the throng dancing to put thy pale lost lilies out of mind what that means i don't know <laughs> but that's where she got it from from that poem that line and yeah i mean we start out with this, again just showing showing off the technicolor showing off the the huge vibrancy of this film bringing in the swell of this score that is so good it's a really good score and it i i did it when when we watch it together i was like reenacting what i thought people were doing in 1939 when they were probably shitting themselves seeing all this in color for the first time i was you know clapping i was going oh my god this is amazing like people were probably going fucking nuts when gone with the wind came out when they first saw that because it is so in your face so epic and so huge in 1861, on the eve of the American Civil War, Scarlett O'Hara lives at Terra, her family's cotton plantation in Georgia, with her parents and two sisters and their many slaves. Scarlett learns that her secret crush, Ashley Wilkes, is to be married to his cousin, Melanie Hamilton. So let's uh, stop right there, actually, for a second to talk about this beginning, because it is important. So the movie, when we first get introduced to the characters, opens up to... Uh, a scene of 
Scarlett O'Hara played by Vivian Lee with uh, two boys, the Tarleton brothers. And actually one of them is played by George Reeves, who is the uh, original Superman in the Superman TV show. A little fun fact there. But anyway, so the movie opens up and it's this dolly in right into Scarlett's face. And it's that big opening shot of like, here's Scarlett. Here she is. This is what she looks like in color. Isn't this amazing? And it gives you this good insight to who Scarlett is. She's this... Scarlett has to be like 16, I think. I think she's like... They say she's 16, yeah. Yeah. So she's 16 at the, at this beginning point. She's this girl who is in love with... She's essentially the girl next door to this guy, Ashley Wilkes, and she's really in love with him, and she wants to marry him, but she's hearing that he's going to marry his cousin, Incest, and that's just a part of the Old South, and that's something that was beautiful to them. And we just get this really good introduction to who she is, and we get one of her most famous catchphrases, which is Fiddle Dee Dee, so... I don't know what you thought about that opening sequence, but I thought it was a good way to jump into who Scarlett is. Yeah, it really just dives right into it where she's immediately just has two boys just trying to like pursue her. You immediately see that she's kind of, you know, loves to play the field. And obviously we have to say Vivian Lee is just so freaking gorgeous. And she like looks like a doll, like her skin yeah. looks like porcelain with these like rosy cheeks and the super bright red and all of the beautiful dresses that we'll get into um it immediately sets you up and it's just like okay not only is this beautiful we're getting like these dynamic camera shots these like zooms and dolly ins and we're immediately brought into this world and it's um, immediately you're intrigued as to what's going on like you're hearing her dad tell her that this guy ashley is getting married to his cousin and you're like what there's so much happening immediately right off the top and then yeah you have getting married to his cousin which is just like kind of normalized and accepted that gets later on kind of poke fun at yeah but it's just immediately you're kind of taken into the beauty of tara and this home and it really wants you to kind of sit down with scarlet and basically show you her world to start out yeah exactly and um just to give some context vivian lee was 24 25 when this was filming so she was still very young she's our age that we are right now me and john so which is a pretty daunting thing to think about another things that kind of happen in the opening sequence we get to first meet mammy played by hattie mcdaniel who we are definitely 100 going to be talking about we get uh her kind of introduction where she's leaning out the window and yelling at scarlet and i think that that's like one of the issues though with how this film portrays black people because you have this black woman playing the mammy character and she it's more like a comedic thing that she does and I, and so obviously they filmmakers use this opportunity to kind of use the stereotype of a of a mammy character and to have just have her yelling and screaming to get those laughs kind of right in there so that's unfortunate but it's also part of Hattie's performance which was overall really great and then we also get the conversation between Scarlett and her dad and that's where the introduction of Tara as as land being so important as land being the only thing that lasts it, it keeps on coming up again and then we get the big I'm going to call it like a swell shot where the score builds up and then we get this pull out of a silhouette shot of Scarlett and her dad looking out onto Tara and that's like one of those another one of those big memorable shots and one of those again one of those things that probably made the audience going like oh my fucking god this is amazing poster shot I would call it it's just so picturesque and you could take so many frames from this movie and just kind of blow them up and make a beautiful poster out of them and it, they're gorgeous and the way they show off Tara and the plantain is is really stunning and it it feels just like unworldly like you've never seen something so like big and grand uh, especially not so far out of all the films that we've watched yeah they do a really good job with the sunset shots 
throughout the film and the especially the color red but that's also uh because of technicolor because technicolor makes that that shit pop um but moving on in the story so at an engagement party with the next day at ashley's home the nearby plantation 12 oaks scarlet makes an advance on ashley but is rebuffed instead she catches the attention of another guest rhett butler the barbecue is disrupted by news of the declaration of war and the men rush to enlist in a bid to arouse jealousy in in a bid to arouse jealousy in ashley scarlet marries melanie's younger younger brother charles before he leaves the fight uh so let's stop right there in the plot because that's also another pretty big sequence at the beginning the 12 oaks barbecue uh so we we so first that that kind of sequence starts out with scarlet getting ready and we already have this whole dynamic between her and mammy uh when mammy is putting a, a corset on scarlet and that's kind of the first time where we see mammy's real purpose in the film that she's the foil to scarlet she's the the foil and the voice of reason at times but she's the person that basically gets in scarlet's face and and tells her that she can't act that way or telling her how she can't be and i think that's because scarlet's mother is not very present and there there's that sense throughout the film that scarlet and her mother didn't have a strong relationship which is which is something to think about with scarlet's character just in general and her whole mindset so we get to the party and you can just you can just see on Scarlett's face that she is there to stir up trouble because she just found out that the guy that she loved, her next door neighbor Ashley, is not going to marry her, that he's going to choose his cousin Melanie. Yeah, so we have Mammy, like you said, who is the motherly figure essentially for Scarlett. And it's she's very childish. She she's basically complaining about what she wants to wear, not eating food and She's basically just like convincing her to do all these things because she basically has to. And yeah, Mammy and uh, Hattie McDaniels has like way more screen time than the the mom does throughout this entire film. And she's way more prominent in her life, it seems, as a a mentor and just someone who kind of speaks uh, the truth basically to Scarlett and understands and basically calms her down and, and shows her how great her life actually is. And yeah, we get to 12 Oaks and it's it's crazy the the cinematography uh throughout all the openings showing the plantations and showing the 12 oaks lot and we'll definitely talk about how incredible the cinematography is and and all the different shots and i especially wanted to give a shout out to jack cosgrove because he did all the special uh photography kind of effects throughout the film and i watched the essentially behind the scenes and like making of of gone with the wind and they really went into a lot of detail of of how they kind of created these shots and they're really 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 fascinating and it's it's stuff you wouldn't even notice looking at some of the frames throughout this film and there's tons of like special effects that you would have no idea that were actually done where a lot of this film and most of the film wasn't even shot down south in plantations it was shot in back lots and in in, uh, in the studios for mgm and and some other studios around hollywood so when you look at the com- kind of compare and contrast of some of these shots, it's drastically different what they're doing and how they're altering these images. And essentially what they would do is shoot uh, the location that they actually have the actors on. And then they would essentially take like paint and they would paint over aspects of the frame uh, with black. And then they would essentially take a glass filter that had the new aspects to build up the mansions, make the backgrounds have tons of trees and beautiful skies and, and really change the entire shot. 
and then kind of integrate all of this into one frame where it looks complete and you would have no idea and there's multiple shots throughout this that uh, they use that technique and you would have no idea that there's a special effect and it looks better than any cgi than you would see today so really really fascinating yeah. no yeah 100 percent. it's it's something really to to take in uh again everything pops all the color pops uh yeah it's really cool so we so we're at the party and, you know, we, we start to see Scarlett interact with Ashley. She's really just trying to get Ashley's attention. And then she meets Melanie and and that Melanie is played by Olivia de Havilland, who gives this performance as Melanie. And she's that whole character herself is very interesting when compared to Scarlett, because she's she's very nice and a, a little naive, I think. And I think she represents what women were supposed to be in the South and the mold that they were supposed to fit. That's kind of what Ashley represents, uh, what Melanie represents. Ashley represents a totally different thing. Uh, yeah. So we, so we get this whole introduction. We start to see that Scarlett's, you know, the way she like, I want to, I want to say she's sort of like a spider because I actually wanted to say this about Vivian Lee's performance. She uses her eyebrows in a very effective way for her facial emotions. And to me that felt very spider like that. She was, you know, getting her, her hands or whatever into every single person's, face and trying to you know be a part and, ca- and cause all this trouble so she so she doesn't get ashley uh she's walking around the party and yeah she meets or she sees Brett butler and that whole shot is another one of those oh my god there is clark gabriel in, in color like the room gets like you just feel so hot and you're just like oh my god there's the sexy 30 th- the 30 star of the of hollywood right there in color and it's really cool they uh so that basically what happens in Scarlet uh, says to, I don't even remember the girl's name because she doesn't even appear ever again. But she's like, who's that guy? And she's like, oh, that's that red butler. And you just kind of see a glimpse of, of Clark Gable. You're like, is that him? And then cuts back to them and they're like kind of talking for a second. And then Scarlet's like, he keeps on looking up at us. And then they do the zoom down the staircase onto him. And it's just Clark Gable just smiling. And again, I can just like hear the reverberations from 1939 of people shitting themselves that Clark Gable's in color and, it was really cool and a really good introduction just to see him there and show off the whole idea of Technicolor. Yeah, it's the whole sets are just absolutely gorgeous with this beautiful staircase that Rhett Butler kind of stands at the very bottom of. And it is great to see Clark Gable looking handsome as ever in color now. And he just has that such a charming smile. He doesn't even have a single word yet. And you're like, oh, my God, I want to freaking kiss this man. <laughs> And yeah, I think you compared Scarlett or Vivian's performance to Spider. I think that kind of, that does make a lot of sense. It's a good comparison because she is like someone immediately when she gets to this party, she's just flirting with every guy, like every guy there. She's basically like, I want to make every single person here jealous. Mainly it seems because she wants Ashley to know that like she's interested in other guys just to make him jealous probably, but she loves the attention. It's so obvious that she wants every guy to be talking about her, every guy to be looking at her, like waiting hand and foot for her. So it is, you can see the power that she has over this world and it's a beautiful beginning to the movie because it kind of shows you just like how gorgeous and pure and like amazing their lives are without showing any of like the really dark aspects of, you know, owning slaves and having all these aspects. But it essentially shows why they love the South so much without, you know, obviously, like I said, ignoring all the really dark traumatic aspects of it. But it shows you essentially the beauty of why they love this area so much. You know, barbecue is such a traditional thing for the South that it's still so commonly used and i was recently just in texas very different part of the south than uh georgia or atlanta but that it's just like a communal thing every sunday you come together it's 
if you're not going to church, then barbecues maybe right after church, or you go to church, then go to barbecue. And it's just such a communal thing where you can tell that everybody's there and they like all love each other and all the girls are gossiping, the guys are talking. It's just like they really build this world and you immediately kind of are established and kind of understand where we are. Yeah, and just to give a quick picture of like how Scarlet is spinning her webs and catching her flies, she has like fifteen guys standing around her, all being like, "Can we get you your dessert?" Yeah, like, "What are the food do you need, Scarlet? <laughs> like, like, yeah, you need more barbecue? What else?" Yeah, and but she picks uh, Charles Hamilton, um, which we'll touch on in a second. Uh, so, the scene, the whole barbecue progresses, and it gets to this like very awkward part where all the women have to go upstairs and go take a nap. That like it's just a thing. You just did that where all the women just had to go take a nap and still wearing their corsets though. So you get to see you know uh, Scarlet interact with her sisters and and some of the women up there. And then one of the more horrific images is that they're all sleeping and there's a little black girl just fanning them in the middle of this nap session. Uh, yes. So bizarre. So disturbing. So just let that sink in that that was just a normal thing they did. Uh, but then at the same time the the men at the party are all gathered in the in the house drinking brandy, smoking cigars, and talking about this impending war. So uh, this is supposed to be like 1860, and, and the Civil War is literally about to happen in like five minutes in the film's world. And so you have all the men discussing and, and talking about that, you know, Ashley says that he just wants the, the North to let the Confederacy uh, secede and just let them be their own country. And which it, because they needed to own slaves, they felt like so. You have this, you have this scene of of Americans, you know, seventy years after the war, and they're discussing it as if it's like this huge patriotic thing. And it reminds me of All Quiet on the Western Front when you had Americans playing Germans, being very patriotic about Germany in World War One. Whereas this feels very, it's this is so off because. You have Americans playing Southern Americans talking about how patriotic it is to fight against the Union, which is what is the United States today. I know there's huge racial issues today, but still it's very odd to, to see that happen and to have this you know whole conversation as if like, yeah, it really means something to fight for the South, to be a Confederacy and how that's patriotic. It's, it's disturbing, honestly. And there's a really important scene here that's not really listed in the plot that we should talk about as well, which is kind of the the men on 12 oaks come together and when they're smoking the cigars and they're talking about everything that it is a very significant moment because it shows deeper into Rhett's character well first we're getting lines from him we've never gotten lines until this this moment where he is a blockade runner uh for the confederacy so he's kind of the the money man trying to get all the supplies and his character is really interesting because he's He's a northerner, kind of like stuck down in the south here, and he still loves the south. And yeah, this, he embraces this way. it. He really embraces it, but he's constantly showing them that like this is not a good battle to fight. He's like, you got no cannons. Like they have all the factories up north. They're on the water. Like they're ready to go, and they're probably going to destroy us. And everyone's giving him shit. Like he doesn't know anything. And yeah, he says to them, "All we got is cotton and slaves." and arrogance and which causes all the other guys to be like oh like fuck you like we got more than that like we'll fight and even charles gets in his face which charles is like a 17 year old kid getting in, into clark cable's face being like oh yeah, i'll take you on i'll take on the north <laughs> yeah he's a swimy little bastard and he's just a very much like the specific notion of what the south is and like the south loving man and Rhett is the guy who's just like none of this matters like why would you guys risk your life doing this 
when you know you you're you barely have much right now other than like your simple pleasures and you could lose that all by entering this war it's clearly not worth it and i think this is where we start to see the difference of rec character from literally every other man in this movie maybe ashley you could also kind of pin in there as well as being kind of very separate and different from all the men of the south but this is where i think we can talk about the film and we've talked about this before in simmerin whether the film the screenplay or the creators have like racist intentions or whether the actual characters are the ones who are racist whether it's just simply based in in that world at the time whatever it may be or the characters that are kind of fueled with bigotry and all this hatred towards different races so here we have a moment where it's not declaring that Rhett is not racist or maybe Rhett has slaves we don't really know anything about this we barely know about where he's even from or lives but we're kind of establishing that he is questioning the south and the south's logic like he's immediately saying and demoralizing these men literally saying like you only have cotton and slaves like it's literally all you have and without these slaves like you would have absolutely nothing so it's just interesting what do you think about that ben yeah it it totally flies in the face of of that culture's whole ideals and and what they think is right and blah 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 because they're racist but red i think that he's i wouldn't say he's like a racist person he's not hourly racist but yeah he's part of that whole system he grew up in it there's a moment later on in the second half of the film where he says like oh well, when i was growing up and i had my mammy so he still had that there was he probably his family probably did have slaves like he's this rich guy uh we, again we don't know more much, much about him he is friendly to the black characters in this film he's very 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 friendly actually to them and but yet there's still that hint of like yeah but you're still slaves and i'm still above you type of thing so so there is that there but uh yeah but so red kind of makes this whole proclamation like you guys are gonna get fucked essentially in this war because you don't have any real ammunition against the north and he then excuses himself from the room he's like well i'm not the fun person at this party and then ashley being the gentlemanly kind of guy that he is he goes after red and is going to go talk to him and show him around the land but that's when scarlet she gets out of the nap room and she intercepts ashley and this is the first scene where the first of, I think, like maybe like three or four different scenes where it's Ashley and Scarlett and and Scarlett being like, I love you. Please marry me. Like, please take me. And Ashley's like, no, I can't. Uh, I think this is the part where he's getting married to Melanie. Like, I can. There's yeah. no way it's going to happen. And he says to her, I think she, he says to her in this part, uh, she's part of my blood. We understand each other. Which is like, oh, that's so weird. And, and another thing to think about why it's so weird for so for Scarlett she grew up next this is the guy next door she she grew up next to you know growing next to him living with him no this is really kind of the only guy that she probably has like really known on a personal level at this point in her life or maybe even just the first like 13 years of her life so she's been smitten with him this whole time she's probably been thinking about for a whole entire life that oh yeah i'm just gonna marry ashley and then just it feels really it does feel like that day she was told out of nowhere yeah he's not gonna marry he's gonna marry his cousin which just is to her is like, well, what the fuck? I've been trying to get this guy for so long. And so she, so this is her first attempt to be like, Ashley, please take me. And he says, no, she even slaps him. She tries to kiss him and he's still like refusing her. And so he leaves the room and she's upset and she throws uh, like a little statue at the wall. And that's where Rhett was. Rhett, I guess, went in there. Taking a nap Take, on a sofa he took in a the nap room. Within like the two minutes of him leaving the room, telling people, all the Southerners that they're idiots to that, he was in the room. He was taking a nap or at least he was just trying to hide and 
not trying to get into their whole conversation, but he overheard that Scarlett loves Ashley, that Scarlett wants him, that Scarlett doesn't want Ashley to marry Melanie. So just remember that because that's like kind of at the end. So Rhett knows almost right away she loves Ashley. She wants Ashley. It's always been about Ashley. Yeah, and that's the first scene that Rhett and and Scarlett really meet, and it's immediately humorous. And you could tell oh, it, that it Clark works Gable, so well. Yeah, you could tell that Clark Gable and and Rhett's character is really like the humor, and the majority of the humor throughout the film. And they immediately have this like amazing chemistry where he's kind of like messing with her, and he's like, "Oh yeah, like I I've heard everything. Like I know all your secrets basically." And like she's really pissed because he knows about this now, and he's like, "Oh, I'm not gonna tell. Like don't worry." It's just really adorable, cute yeah. scene, and it reminds me of uh, it happened one night. I it's was just about to say chemistry. that. Yeah, yeah it, it it really does feel like that. You just plopped in Peter Warner and just put him right into here, which I guess is what they wanted to do. Uh, yeah, so you do you do have that great chemistry right off the bat, and then it all ends with uh, with essentially like there. I guess there's some guy who was like, "The war is starting that day, that party. It all just Perfect. happens. Perfect timing. <laughs> Perfect yeah. timing. Like, okay, it works out in the in the in the film world." And Charles Hamilton, so this is Melanie's brother. Uh, so just to give a little outside perspective, so you have Ashley, you have Scarlett who loves Ashley. Ashley's going to marry Melanie. Melanie's brother is Charles. And Charles was supposedly going to marry India Wilkes, who was Ashley's brother. So there's all, which is another cousin set. So you have this these five people all exchanging partners or whatnot, love triangles. So Charles runs up to Scarlett and is like, let me marry, like, I want to marry you. And Scarlett is jealous of she sees Ashley kiss Melanie goodbye and she's like all right well I'll just fuck it we'll get married yeah yeah, yeah we'll get married uh yeah so she decides to marry him and we move on the plot and within five minutes of her marrying him Charles dies so following Charles deaths while serving in the Confederate States Army Scarlett's mother sends her to the Hamilton's home in Atlanta where she creates a scene by attending a charity bazaar in her morning attire and waltzing Lavrette now a blockade runner for the Confederacy. Charles dies of pneumonia, which we see from a letter that Scarlett gets, which is, I think for Scarlett, she's like, well, I would rather he die in a patriotic way because that's the kind of person she is at the beginning of the film. So it's a little, it's a little funny that, yeah, like this guy. It's definitely purposely played up though because she's like commenting how she like hates wearing black, doesn't ever want to wear black. Like she's like, doesn't even, it's like, I'm not sad that he's dead. At 16 years old, she's already a widow. She's like, fuck, I'm so young in a window. Like this is embarrassing. Like it's played up in humor, which I thought was really funny, but also like completely disregarding this random kid's life who just died. And yeah, you're right. She is kind of like, oh, that's how he died like he didn't get like gunned down in battle or have this like heroic death yeah and yeah it's a really funny scene there's a there's a good line so uh the whole idea is that melanie and ashley had gotten married the day before and the next day scarlett and charles get married and melanie says and this is just melanie's character which her naivety she goes your wedding was a beautiful was was as beautiful as ours and scarlett who is just so sad goes was it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then Ashley says nothing because I guess it's like the whole procession line of them congratulating uh, the newlyweds and he just kisses uh, Scarlett on the cheeks and Scarlett just breaks down crying because she's like I married Charles Hamilton and not Ashley Wilkes so Charles is dead Scarlett goes to Atlanta she uh, she's staying with Melanie and their aunt because I guess Scarlett is now really technically a Hamilton within this world 
and uh we have to talk about the charity bazaar oh oh that's we, a very interesting oh we're aspect. talking about that because that i get that's another one of those scenes where the eyebrows come so into play and this the whole like spinning her web uh yeah so you get to this dance in atlanta and even that like so with the cinematography for that scene they really pack the frame there's so much going on there's they really do a great job of stacking it also where there's they'll put something coming into the foreground but then in the background there's something else moving so it's really well done. We, I don't think we've really seen that since like all quiet on the Western front that yeah, did that probably. pretty well. Yeah. That much I kind of packed into one. Yeah. Frame. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah. So this, the scene is very packed. You have, uh, you have Scarlett and, and Melanie. I, I, I guess it's like a giveaway table. I, I couldn't really tell. Maybe it's a donation table. Uh, Cause kind of what they're trying to do is raise money for the war effort. And Rhett comes in. And Rhett's, you know, he's sweet talking them, you know, obviously. And you can see Scarlet like, oh, fuck, I'm in black and I have to talk to this really hot guy and who I kind of have some interest in, but she doesn't really know that yet. And he doesn't really know that yet. And so then the funny, the funniest aspect of that scene is that there's a guy asking for donations from everyone. And Rhett, you know, he does the very gentlemanly and chivalrous thing by saying, oh, you know, take instead of them having to go up their jewelry, Melanie and Scarlet. Here's my golden cigar box. And then you have Melanie immediately stare down her hand at her ring finger on her left hand and like make this internal decision. She's like, should I do it? Should I not do it? This is for Ashley. And she decides to give her ring to to the cause to be donated. And then immediately Scarlett just rips off her glove. And she's like, here, take mine. And just throws the wedding ring that she was given from Charles. And it is so fucking funny. And it's a very, very different notion because she's clearly jealous of Melanie. She wants to be with Ashley. She literally wants to be Melanie in a way. So you And have, impress Rhett. And impress Rhett. So you have like all these different dynamics going on. Plus it's played up as humor because it's so clear she did not care about Charles. It was all because of just trying to impress Ashley or make Ashley jealous in any way. So she's like almost like excited to get rid of this ring and just get it off her hands. Cause it's like, you know, it never happened. Like it's over and she can move on and not be a widow, not wear black. So yeah, she, she's so, so quick to want to get rid of that whole identity of, of having to mourn and, uh, and be in black. And another thing to also keep in mind about this to, to give some context uh, they, they were all celebrating at the beginning of the dance scene because they had just gotten word that General Lee was pushing the North out of Virginia. So they're very excited that General Lee, you know, to them, who's a great guy, to us as a shitty person, was making a good pu- push at the beginning of this war. Uh, and so then the whole scene, which, again, packed full frame, beautiful colors, beautiful dresses, just beautiful everything. Uh, it ends with this uh, auction off. And uh, there's an older woman. I think it's uh, I think it's Mrs. Merriweather. She's basically like stunned that they're going to auction off girls for the night because she's like, <laughs> she's like, we can't do, you know, essentially saying that uh, that's like slave stuff. Like we're not, these women aren't slaves. So it's okay to, to auction off the black people and, and, you know, give them trauma. But at a dance party, we can't have fun and raise money for the war effort by giving, which I get, which again, I guess if you did that today, it would be a little bit weird. But if you're doing it for charity, I guess it's somewhat okay. And if, and if all the women are okay with it, with being auctioned off for a date night, like, like that's totally fine I guess if everyone was okay with it but within the context of this room the older women are like no we can't do that and then immediately Rhett bits I think was it $150 yeah yeah on so Scarlet. much more yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's odd just because they're like a charity for women but it's still something that I've heard like happens today for like random weird fundraisers yeah. or with celebrities and it's bizarre I wonder if this is like the first time we've ever seen kind of like charity for 
men or women like on film or if this kind of helped because it is I wouldn't say it's a cliche because it doesn't happen that often in film but I've definitely seen this in a couple of movies yeah for some reason the only movie I, I can think of right now off the top of my head where I've seen this is uh, White Chicks where yeah. they're bidding for each other and, I was thinking of an episode of Entourage <laughs> oh of course where, where yeah of course that. Entourage would have that too. yeah but yeah so it's a uh, it, it's a it, it's a good scene then you get to have uh scarlet and rhett dance together and that's mm-hmm. also really shot well yeah Can, i want to I yeah. mention that real quick because i watched the behind the scenes and rhett or clark gable who played rhett was so nervous about dancing it was like one of the first scenes that they filmed and he was terrified because he know, knew he was such a bad dancer and he thought he was going to ruin the film overall and he was really nervous to even sign up and do this film initially because of just how popular Gone with the Wind was as a book. And he just didn't want to let people down uh, because Rhett was this just like fa- male fantasy for a lot of people. And he was like this iconic figure that he didn't really want to like let people down and, and think only about the book and not about the film. So a small little detail about that. It's, it's really beautiful. We're like kind of like following them around. It's keeping in shot with them as it's kind of, uh, as they're dancing and moving around the, the hall, but to avoid his bad dancing, what they did is built the camera on like a moving platform that would move gradually with them. So you couldn't see them like stumbling or not dancing well. So it looked more natural and elegant. It looked like they did a projector too in the back. Did they, did it say that? They didn't really talk about okay. that now. Cause they do that so several times him. in the movie where they have projectors in the film. Like shooting as backgrounds? Yeah, yeah, as backgrounds. Yeah, that could have been like also the glass plates that they use and like oh. replaced entirely. It, it was honestly insane, some of the shots that they changed. And it, it even has like people walking. And there are specific shots throughout the film where you can notice it, like where shadows don't kind of like yeah. overlay on people walking through them and stuff like that. But it's it's also well done. And it's a adorable scene of them dancing. And it's clear that she's just like, God damn it. Like, yeah. why did you win? Like, she's so like anti-ret still at this point that it's... It's adorable. I love that. And that's something that I talked about in it happened one night where I like my favorite couples and relationship are on screen is where like they grow to love each other. And when they hate each other at first, it leads to like such hilarious humor because you know where it's going to end up. And yeah, they just have Vivian and Clark Gable have such great chemistry. Yeah, 100 percent. So now might be a good time to take actually a step back and go a little bit back in time um, for the behind the scenes aspect of this movie. So this movie infamously is known for having multiple directors and multiple writers and really, and one producer, and that was David O. Selznick and Harv Selznick. He was the head of Selznick International Pictures. And so this was, Gone with the Wind was his baby. He was the whole creative mind really behind it. And and that becomes a, we kind of talked about that in episode nine with the great Zigfield of like the producer versus the director briefly. Uh, but this one is really a, this is a director's film, uh, a producer's film. I producer's film it's a producer's yeah. film, I should say. <laughs> a lot of directors, a lot but of directors. a producer's film. So, and, and I want to stop here because the first director who who was uh, in charge of really pre-production and getting the film going was George Cooker. And his contribution supposedly, and we, I there's no way of really knowing, uh, but his contribution was supposedly the first three reels. Uh, that's in the final cut. So this is a half hour into it. Three reels is about a half hour. Uh, into the film uh, so this so this is kind of George Cooker's contribution and it, it totally and and the way the actors and actresses to me is it's very different to then how the film progresses because uh, it's a little more lightheartedness there's a little bit more of that comedy in it um, and I and I like and I like the first half actually more than the second half of the film 
uh, because of this. And so we, uh, so we have, so this is probably the end of, of Cooker's uh, uh, input into the film. There's probably some things he did with the burning of Atlanta and that whole sequence in the second half of the first half. Uh, but yeah, but this is kind of where uh, the film can, will start to take that drastic difference or it start to look a little bit different. Um, but yeah, but this film, it's very odd that it had three directors and George Cooker was one of them. And he's a great director in his own right. And he would go on to win for My Fair Lady in like 64. Yeah, they talked a lot about the different directors in the making of documentary. And originally why he left was because of the back and forth that he had with uh, the producer and how he just couldn't, he kept wanting to make changes in the script. And they were Which like Selznick did not. Selznick, yeah, Selznick wanted, refused to. Yeah. Want, let well, that I happen. guess if Selznick wanted to change, he wanted to make the change himself. That's what exactly. It, that, that's the impression I got. That's how dominant he was on the film. Like the directors were there to like make sure the production was going, but he was to make there to make sure that everything was in line the way he wanted and the way he thought it deserved. Because it, it seemed that he knew what this movie could be, and he knew just what length this film would go and he just had this like vision that went way beyond and people talk such great things about him but they also talk a lot of negative things about Shelznick and just his kind of abusive power making this movie and some of his other movies but yeah that's interesting that we kind of break it down with three different directors do you want to talk about the other two directors now or kind of move forward still I think we should move forward still but I think it's also important just to there there are many rumors to why Cougar left there's rumors that just creative differences with Selznick which I think is probably the most dominant thing there's a rumor that Clark Gable was afraid of Cougar for several reasons one being that Cougar was more known as a as a an actress's director so he was much better with with the women in the film and uh to clark gable he didn't necessarily feel comfortable about that also supposedly and this is a rumor i don't this is just what researching and reading random things supposedly uh clark gable was part of the underground gay circuit of hollywood as a gigolo and cooker was gay himself and supposedly clark gable didn't want cooker to maybe use that against him again this is alleged we don't know and uh, there's a lot out there um, but that is something that has come up. I, I saw several times while researching about why Cooker left. So another thing also with Cooker and, and him being more of a women's director is that Lee and De Havilland would secretly go visit him to go over their lines and acting because Victor Fleming, the next director, was not a women's director. And I think we should leave it at that for right now. So moving on uh, in the plot, the tide of turn, the tide of war turns against the Confederacy after the Battle of Gettysburg, in which many of the men of Scarlet's town are killed. Uh, yeah, so this scene is basically Scarlet and Melanie waiting in this huge town square. Everyone's waiting in Atlanta to hear about Gettysburg and who died, and everyone's hearing about uh, all the people that died. Um, Melanie and Scarlet are very happy that Ashley is not on that list, and. Melanie even comments to the effect of, oh, I'm so glad that you care so much, Scarlett, that you're here with me to support me through this. To which yeah. <laughs> it's shown just how like naive she is. Yeah. Melanie still, it still is about her love for Ashley. And it's, again, kind of humorous to me in a way. I don't know if it was supposed to be that way, where Scarlett like, really just wants to be there to know if Ashley's alive. She like only cares about Ashley. And correct me if I'm wrong, we... we we don't see Gettysburg per se, but no, we, we do see. We, don't we see the aftermath, or at least all the wounded soldiers? Or is that later still? We see wounded soldiers coming back after the war is completely over, but not of Gettysburg itself. Yeah, there's no shots of Gettysburg. It's more of just the, like. The well, women we, I on guess the we also get people in the in the in the hospital too. So I guess maybe those were soldiers who were in Gettysburg or just other parts. 
Um, but Rhett is also in the scene and uh, he says the cause of living in the past is dying right in front of us, which is a, a really great line. Again, plays into that whole of to the whole effect of what are they really fighting for in the South? Uh, because it's a thing of the past and doesn't need to be there. And uh, one other thing, which was from the bizarre scene and we didn't do it, but I think it actually applies well to now is Rhett says to Scarlett, I only believe in Rhett Butler. The rest of the cause doesn't mean much to me. So again, the whole, the cause, this, the cause that it doesn't mean anything to Rhett and the cause is causing all these people to die in the South and all these people that Scarlett knows, including the Charlatan twins at the beginning of the movie. They, mm-hmm. they are mentioned as one of the, as two of the people that die. We should also mention that Melanie at this point is pregnant, or at least they kind of tell us that she is and that she's expected to give birth as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So around this time, Ashley comes back on leave and um, it's around like Christmas time. So I guess everyone in both armies is like, oh, it's Christmas and we're not going to take a break. We won't play drums and kill each other. We'll go home. Yeah, we won't try and fight for slavery and blah, 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 blah. And uh, um, yeah, so so Ashley comes back. It's Christmas. And even that whole scene again. Melanie, uh, Scarlett accompanies Melanie to the train station to pick up Ashley. Ashley and Melanie embrace. It's beautiful. I'm crying because it's so beautiful and they love each other, even though they're cousins. And then Scarlett gets to meet, uh, you know, she gets to see Ashley and she's trying to hold back tears. And, and Ashley gives her like a kiss on the cheek. And Scarlett is just like, why couldn't this be me uh, type of thing? And so they celebrate Christmas together in Atlanta. And Scarlett has to be in the same house and one floor under. Uh, Ashley impregnating Melanie because I think that's where it's implied is because at the end of the at the end of the night they're going upstairs and they're I, Ashley's probably only there for like two or three days so Ashley needs to you got his business got to get his business he done two and, or three pumps in those two <laughs> oh god or three days <laughs> oh god and <laughs> it doesn't really say in the plot line too much but um but during this time Scarlett is kind of helping in in town and she's in Atlanta and. They're in a church, right? And that's where all yeah. the wounded soldiers are kind of being brought in from, I guess, wars, maybe from Virginia and brought down yeah. to Atlanta where they're kind of helping. And we get some really dark, disturbing moments in the film here where it's not really sympathizing with the men. It's just kind of sympathizing with war and victims of war as you see, like, just how much brutality there is and it reminds me of all quiet on the western front where we get like cutting off the legs and there's so much chaos going on and scarlet can barely like deal with how much trauma is happening it's not that she can't deal with it she just doesn't want to be there yeah she seems very like indifferent that that just feels like she's wasting her time she and she's really only there probably because melanie was like because melanie being the angel that she is it wants to help out it wants to be there as a nurse because in her mind she's like well if this was Ashley, I would hope that some northern woman was helping him out. So to her, she's like, well, I got to do my part and help. Um, yeah, so there's that, that other dichotomy of Scarlet versus Melanie, what Melanie wants to do, what Scarlet wants to do. But also jumping back quickly to the whole sex thing. Uh, this is this has to be another like kind of breaking point for Scarlet because like, this whole first half is really breaking Scarlet down. It's it's forcing her out of her way of life, forcing her out of her comfort zone. And she has to essentially be okay with that. The guy that she's been in love with for her entire life is, you know, gonna have a baby and, 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 you know, having sex with this other woman. And I got to ask this question now, because do you think Scarlett had sex with Charles when they got married? Do you think that that happened? Or do you think Charles probably went right off to war? Because there's a lot of 
Scarlet that isn't sexy. This, she's not like yeah, she's a beautiful like Vivian Lee's a beautiful woman, but she's not her sex appeal and isn't as done up as you would expect for a movie from this time. I would say no. I don't think Scarlet and Charles had sex. I I feel like they would show that, and they would make that known that that's the case. But they the film doesn't really lead you to believe that at all. So yeah. I'm going to take like the film's word that it's not. And it seems like she's kind of saving herself for Ashley. It's like, she's so passionate yeah. about this man, even though he's married, he has a kid now coming on the way and he's at war. Like all three of those reasons should be alone to like, just leave this man and leave Melanie alone and just like take care of her and be a, a you know a good friend. Yeah, and she and she just won't. And uh, I, it's just something that to pocket in your memory bank, audiences and John, just put in your memory to because I want to bring this up later with Scarlet's sex life because I think that plays very heavily into who she becomes definitely in, in the second yeah, half of the definitely. film. Definitely. Well, I want to mention that you said that the first half of the film, and we're probably about like halfway now through the first half of the film. It is not my favorite. I think the second half is my favorite just because of how much Scarlet changes and Vivian's performance. I think it's way more complex because it's it's we'll talk about it yeah. as we get further. I don't really want to spoil anything just yet. But for me, Scarlet is really frustrating in this first half of this movie because she's so naive. She's so obsessed with Ashley. And, and that obviously doesn't go away. It's kind of prominent throughout the film. But she is such a kid still. And it's definitely intentional vivian lee is so good at like portraying this and portraying different ages throughout the film even though she looks the same i think throughout every moment of the movie but it she's just frustrating really and she's a frustrating character and i could get people who would watch the first half of this movie and turn it off because they're like this woman is so annoying like she's just doing everything you don't want her to do it's like you're watching a horror movie and you're like don't go to the basement and they go (laughs) into the basement and you're like watching Scarlett O'Hara and you're like don't tell Ashley you love him again for like the third time he said no he knows he's going to be with Melanie they have a kid so it can be a frustrating watching experience just simply from Scarlett O'Hara she even kisses Ashley too she like forces herself onto him yeah uh, she's like before he leaves she's like tell me you love me just tell me tell me like I need to hear it and he does admit in that moment that he does love her. He, he's like, I do and I don't. And, and then walks it, it's, away, it's such a toxic type of thing. And, and so and even on Ashley's end, he's just, he, he's like misleading her to awful, awful lengths. And, and, but that's also kind of why I like the first half. I'm a, I'm a process guy. I like to see my, I like to see what breaks down the characters I'm watching on film. I, I've always enjoyed that. I think that's what makes a movie of recent memory like the joker being really appealing because most of that film is how he became the joker like what broke him down what what was the turning point and then that last half hour we get to see the whole thing uh come together and so for me you get to see what breaks down scarlet and what leads her to do some things in the second half or act some ways in the second half of the film uh and i think there's just a little bit more dynamic there's a little bit there's more action in the first half there's some more dynamics going on and uh so i think that's why i like the first half more uh but let's move on in the plot so eight months later uh scarlet stays in atlanta with melanie when she's pregnant so kind of what sets that up is that uh the doctor they've been working for is like she can't go anywhere she's pregnant don't move like she's also like sick as well while she's pregnant yeah they 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 never say like what what it is she just say she's like a weak person Uh, olivia the havilland's kind of a smallish person so maybe 
she's a bit frail. I, I don't know. I, they they don't really say out really like what makes her. They're basically eight. alluding that she could die from yeah, this yeah, pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, she's like a sickly person. And I know pregnancy back then was a whole awful experience because they didn't have modern medicine. But anyway, so basically Scarlet is – she stays – she wanted to go to Tara, but she doesn't go to Tara because she stays behind with Melanie. And specifically because Prissy, who's played by Butterfly McQueen, she's one of the slaves who goes with – She's the she is the slave that goes with Scarlet to Atlanta. Um, and Butterfly McQueen does a great job. And this performance as as Prissy and Prissy basically says, oh, I know how to deliver kids. I can help out. So Scarlett, she's like, OK, I'll stay behind because Prissy knows how to give birth. I'll be the person in charge. I'll help her and Melanie get through that process. And she's doing that, I guess, maybe because she thinks that doing that would be a heroic thing for Ashley to see. And I, I think maybe to her, she's trying to be a good person. But yeah, so that's the whole reason why she stays back. She and, doesn't and, seem like she wants to, though. Like she, no, all. she does not. She yeah. does not want to, and she only does. And really, she only does it because Prissy says, "I know how to deliver yeah. a baby." So she thinks like all the work will be off her back. And exactly, I think Prissy is a good moment to kind of stop and talk. And first, Butterfly McQueen coolest name that's the coolest yeah, name i've ever cool heard name. in my entire life very cool and second it's a good point to stop and, and talk about the way black characters are treated in this film every character will have different kind of opposing viewpoints but every white character in the film mainly scarlet a couple other use these slaves as just whatever they need them to be and that's all they are really for most of the film i think you can make the argument with Hattie McDaniel, and we haven't talked a lot about about her because she comes much more prominently in the second half of the film. But Prissy is there for partially comedy, which is what we've kind of seen in the past. But really, it's just like Scarlett just wants to use her for everything. Like she doesn't want anything to be kind of put on her shoulders. She just wants like this person to do all the heavy lifting and do all the work. So you're getting that like mentality that that's the way they treat people. But at the same time, Throughout this film, we haven't really talked about that we we see black soldiers fighting for the South, and we never see any of them rebuttal. They're kind of happy to fight for the South. Oh, they're they're very happy. They, yeah, they're happy to like defend their plantations and like eventually go home to their owner. And like, there's no objection. And while this film has white characters who kind of say racism and slavery, it's not good. Like, I don't believe in it. Like, this sh- maybe should go away we don't ever have a black perspective that like fully goes out and and shows that dynamic and that struggle so i think that is a huge part of why people kind of look at this film and as being very racist because it doesn't really show their point of view and their perspective at all yeah 100 percent, and and also the way it's delivered and and the the whole performance is it it's not colorful at all it's very dark and and it's painful it's one of those things that jacqueline stewart was talking about and actually she did a it's on hbo max as well there's like an hour-long panel discussion that tcm did i think in 2019 and it jacqueline stewart was on it and i think she brings up the point that slaves had to play dumb and that's really sad that i have to say that but slaves had to play dumb in order to not get punished so hard so for prissy She's like, well, I only said that I was good at helping because, you know, to, to kind of like get my way out of it. She says all these things. She lies to Scarlett a few times in this whole sequence uh, to just get her way out of it, to not be as punished as harshly, to just, I guess, because she'd be afraid that she would get whipped in, in a way, that she would just be tortured because uh, she's trying to help, which she doesn't. And, and, yeah. and luckily, 
that happened but still she was a slave so that's just another aspect to think about with how with some of the characters especially the black characters and how they may interact because they may just be lying just to get out of trouble and not have to be the subject of more torture and slavery yeah and at, at this moment in the film we're seeing that uh, the north is getting further and further south and it looks pretty confidently that Atlanta is going to be raided by the north and there's even talk about how uh, northerners in this film like may like abuse and do horrible things to, to people that are black even though they're northerners and fighting against this you're still scared of the north in a way even though they're fighting to free you and she probably just didn't want to be like right on the front line and being inside this really nice house there uh, Scarlett's aunt's house and just being there and being safe delivering with a pregnancy that sounds like a much safer gig than probably what she was doing beforehand so it's such a tricky situation where they just don't really like give them any kind of opportunity to really show them who they are like they're all kind of used by the the other characters and that's kind of the perspective of the south and of these southerners and why they're fighting so hard to keep the south the way it is yeah so it's unfortunate but let's move on in the story so eight months later as the city is besieged by the union army in the atlanta campaign Melanie gives birth with Scarlet's aid, and Rhett helps them flee the city. And then once out of the city, Rhett chooses to go off to fight, leaving Scarlet to make her own way back to Terra. Stop for a second. Uh, that whole sequence is called The Burning of Atlanta. Uh, it was actually the first thing that was ever filmed for the movie. So AFI, American Film Institute, has a lot of documentation of the movie. And so it reads, the first shots were filmed on the evening of Saturday, December 10th, 1938, uh, for the burning of Atlanta, it was filmed on the on the Selznick International backlot in Culver City, California. At that time, the casting of Scarlett and a number of the major characters had not been finalized yet. And actually, Lee had first met Selznick during the filming of the burning of Atlanta. So, so she's starting to become a part of it. So, it, actually, if you watch that sequence, you'll see several times where the supposed Scarlett character is kind of covering her face. And that's because they just had wide shots of like a stunt woman and and not a set Scarlet yet. So if you watch the film, you may be like, why is, does Scarlet have her hand over her face? That's because it's not Vivian Lee; it's someone else. And also with the burning of Atlanta, they had to they had to get a pretty big fire going. Uh, they couldn't burn L.A. yet like they are doing now because of awful global warming. But anyway, so among the sets that were burned, uh, they used different RKO uh, set pieces from past films. The ones that can be identified in slow motion and still photography are the gates from King Kong on which Selznick acted as an executive producer. So they had to burn old sets and King Kong makes a little appearance, or at least the gates of King Kong make an appearance in The Burning of Atlanta and Gone with the Wind. So the whole sequence starts uh, The Burning of Atlanta when they're in this like church hospital and you have this very interesting shot of, uh, of a priest I guess reading last rites to dying men and you hear bangs and everything going off and then the stained glass window that's behind him shatters and that's all really cool and uh, visually stimulating um, and Scarlet is in there and she's being asked to help cut off a man's leg and she's basically saying fuck that I'm not going to help this guy and she goes back and that's when Melanie starts to give birth and she starts to realize she's in and out of over her head she has to get Melanie and Prissy out and herself out of Atlanta as it's burning down and she asked Prissy to, uh, to go get the doctor. Prissy comes back and says no. And so Scarlet is forced to go out into to Atlanta being destroyed. 
to a war zone essentially. Yeah, to, yeah. To, a, to a little war zone and that gives us probably it might be my second favorite shot after the silhouette sunset shots and that's of a scarlet walking through this whole field of just wounded and dying and dead uh confederate soldiers and it it's just i guess they probably use a crane yeah definitely yeah they definitely use a crane to pull out and it's huge it's probably like a football field size of just extras so you have to think there's probably like a thousand extras just for this one shot alone and uh there's taps playing in the background but then it pulls out and shows the confederate flag waving as if it's an american flag or yeah yeah. Just glorifying the flag, but I can speak on the act- extras. Actually, there was a fun moment in the documentary where they showed one of the extras, and they, he was on the set. They must have just filmed this behind the scenes, and he's like a wounded soldier, and right next to him is like a dummy. And they were like, "Well, the guy who was the extra, he was saying how the assistant director came up to everybody, and they were like, you're gonna find like this little metal prong on the back of the body.'" And you're going to pull this little prong and it'll like make the dummy's arm move. So it (laughs) looks like that there's a lot more men on the battlefield uh, or in that section of the field than there actually were. And it was the extra's responsibility to kind of move and make it look like the other men were alive. See, like that's the thing now today where it would just be CGI'd and it's just... And And it would look way worse. Yeah. And it's a lost aspect to the art form where we... Or it's great that we have CGI and it's really cool that what we can do with it. But the practicality and the practical effects is just completely lost uh, on filmmakers today. And it's something that I wish was still there. But the scene goes on. Basically, the doctor is like to Scarlett, I can't help you give birth right now. I help Melanie give birth right now because there's just dying men. So I'm not going to help you. So she has to go back and with Percy and deliver. Yeah. yeah and, and, and deliver and deliver the baby and they deliver the baby. And then Scarlett's basically. Basically saying like, I, well, now we need to really get the fuck out of here. And she tells Prissy to go get Rhett, mm-hmm. and Rhett is at Bell Watling, and Bell Watling owns a brothel. Uh, they never outwardly say what who Bell Watling is, but that's the implication is that she is a, um, I don't know if she herself is a is a prostitute, but at least she runs a brothel. And you get a pretty funny scene of uh, Prissy yelling up. <laughs> To Rhett being like, Captain Butler, Captain Butler, we need you. And Rhett's like, well, why don't you just come on up here? And they're yeah. all just having this huge having party while Atlanta is burning down. Uh, so I guess Rhett's just like, I don't really give a fuck what, yeah. what happens. And so I do want to mention Prissy again, too, because we kind of skimmed over the fact that they gave birth to her. But right before that, Scarlett was like, this happens to happen now. Like, she's going to give birth. We need to do this right now. And Prissy's basically breaks down and is just like, I have no idea how to like deliver anyone. I lied. Like, I don't know what's going on. And Scarlett obviously is super pissed because she doesn't want the responsibility on her. It's like a cursed child almost to to Scarlett. She's like, I don't want to even see this baby. I don't want to know that it even exists because she's kind of delusional and still thinks she'll be with Ashley. But she gets like violent towards Prissy where she's like smacking her and smacking her and in the documentary they talked about how it just they were trying to fake it and it just didn't really work and there's kind of different reactions on set where Percy was like getting actually hit during this scene yeah like I had heard over and over Ma- I heard Butterfly McQueen was very adamant to not getting slapped to not getting slapped but the producer Shelznick basically told her that like this is his movie like you're gonna do yeah. what I say and it ended up with uh, actually Vivian Lee actually slapping Butterfly McQueen. So yeah. it's it's a really disturbing aspect just because it's, it's a really abusive and it just, again, shows Scarlett's 
like kind of abusive power and she just uses slaves around her just to kind of like fuel whatever goal she needs to meet throughout the film. Yeah. So yeah, it's really unfortunate and, and disturbing, but we're moving on. And uh, so Scarlett is helping Melanie give birth. Melanie even says to her that if I die, I want you to have the baby. So now that's on Scarlett's conscious. So Scarlett has been through a lot in just this one day, having to see so many men dying, the whole world and, and culture around her is collapsing. And then out of, uh, out of the thin air comes Rhett heroically with a uh, actually he comes with Prissy because Prissy gets him to get a horse and buggy and they come and get uh, come get Melanie. Melanie is completely I would imagine she probably lost a lot of blood. She's probably she's she looks like she's about to die, uh, but she doesn't. And they get her out of the house. Right. Literally, it seemed like right when everything just started exploding and all the fire effects started happening, which was crazy and epic. And then again, talking about Technicolor you just huge vibrant colors that you have all these reds popping out um there was some really weird lighting choices and it happens a few times where some of the lighting is off but there is some blue light coming out of nowhere and i don't know if that's because they needed to light up uh the the main actor's faces in the in a way so i don't know if that's supposed to be the moon but it was yeah, very odd yeah it's very light. odd because it's yeah. so red uh everywhere but then you get some glimpses of blue and I wrote this in my notes. It's some Indiana Jones type shit of what they're trying to do and, and getting through all of this action. It's, it's really, there's a lot of action going on and it's very well coordinated, very well done. Again, this was the first thing they, they ever filmed for the entire thing. So again, Cooker was probably directing this. I don't know if Fleming was, maybe Fleming helped out or did more of the insert close-up shots of uh, Clark Gable and Vivian Lee when they're riding around. But in terms of the huge wide shots that was probably our cooker uh for that sequence yeah it's a really beautiful sequence and it's a really great chase scene and and action scene honestly and you wouldn't really expect it from this film so far because there's been really zero action and it's it's very intense i could totally see the indiana jones uh, kind of reference being on horseback kind of racing and people are trying to jump onto the carriage and they're trying to attack them and they're like taking quick turns but everything's catching on fire it feels like a ride that you would be on at like Universal or Disneyland it's like a, a crazy ride where everything is beautiful orange glow and it's this film to me kind of like obviously being the first color film uh, so far for outstanding production but it also kind of defines a color palette to me which is that comparison of that bluish color to the orange and red hues where there's it's so common it's like the main colors that we see on like every movie poster and the film really kind of deals with that back and forth and kind of takes those two colors and makes them like fight against each other throughout the film and they're used synonymously like in very emotional moments so here we have the, the bright orange fire and it's super epic and intense and and uh, Clark Gable's like shooting guys off as they're trying to like hop on. Well he's on. not shooting he's like punching guys. Yes he's punching he's, and like kicking them off. Yeah because yeah. uh, essentially all the people who um I don't know what I don't know what to call them, uh, but people who are basically like, "Oh shit's really going down. Let's fucking rob everything." Yeah, they're just like looters and rioters. Yeah, yeah, yeah looters and rioters, and they see the horse, and because horses were scarce, so they try to attack them, and they don't, and they're able to get out of Atlanta. So first, they see a bunch of uh, soldiers walking around out when outside of Atlanta, and Rhett says, "You can tell your grandchildren you watch the South disappear one night," at which. Is a pretty powerful line, and I'm not, and I think it's powerful just because the idea of like, you're gonna tell your grandchildren where you were on this historical night, the historical night being that like, yeah, your whole culture is burned down, your whole culture 
was to empower slavery, which is not good. So that's the bad part of it, but it's a good line uh, regardless. Um, and so then we get to probably the, uh, the reddest of red scenes of the entire film. And one of the more, there was a, a re-release of the film in 67 and this was the shot on the poster and it's of Clark Gable holding Vivian Lee and there's just fire everywhere. It's, it's beautiful. It's erotic, romantic. And basically Rhett's like, I'm going to leave you here. You have to go the rest of your own way to Tara. You're the, you know, I'm going to go join the army. And he, he says, should I be ashamed of this? Should I be ashamed of, of wanting, of being a Southerner and but he's like, well, I'm still going to go back and join the army, which is a little odd because you would think Rhett, knowing who he is and kind of the guy he is, you would think that he would just go with them to Tara. But he stops. He says, no, I'm going to let you go the rest of the way. And Scarlet is very upset by this. And Rhett tries to he he tries to kiss her and he and he tries to tell her that he loves her. And even though he barely knows her and he forces himself onto her, he forces a kiss and she and the music swells up so you think it's going to be romantic and then she you can see scarlet is pushing away and she gets out away from him and she slaps him and she says that he isn't a gentleman and she's very upset by this and uh and it, and it flies in the face of of normal hollywood romance so this is sort of the start of that where it breaks those, those stereotypes of hollywood romance where the guy yeah he did something heroic but he's not getting the girl at least not yet because she's because she doesn't like him she still has probably a thing for ashley and it it's a it, it stands out because again you think it's this big romantic thing with all the red in the background of all the fire he just saved her and she's finally gonna be able to go home and escape and she still rebuffs him yeah part of me is like it's probably because he's leaving and they don't directly say that in the film of why he's going back he just says he's just going back um, to help, he I don't really th- assume that he's going to actually fight. I'm assuming that he has money still in the war and he has to go back and make sure that's protected in a way. It's not really like stated, but that's kind of I'm assuming. I don't think he's like going to be on the front line. And I think Scarlett's just really pissed. Again, it fits into her character perfectly where she wants like she needs help like she needs everyone to save her and and as soon as he's like you got it the rest of the way like you can deal with it the rest of the way like good luck it's it's intense and she doesn't want to deal with it and she's really pissed off i to me it feels like she likes him at this moment like she does actually have feelings for him she's probably not in love with him and it is kind of like a forced awkward kiss but to me i don't think she like hates Rhett at this moment like yeah yeah I don't think she hates Rhett but she's not infatuated with him yet and I don't think I don't think she ever really is but it's uh it's something it's different because you whenever you see that shot on the poster you think oh they are probably so in love that's so romantic and so Hollywood but she slaps him and she says I don't want you to kiss me like stop like I actually like yeah like I need you to help me and that's part of her character but it's also it leads to how she does change and so it's it, it's interesting it, it's very it flies in the face of normalcy it's 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 cool and 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 i like it that she's that she's standing up she's being firm she's breaking out of that mold of, out of that southern woman mold and also that 1939 mold of what a woman should be so so we get this really cool you know the beautiful cinematography we get that whole shot it's a great sequence you should watch if you haven't seen this film it's definitely on youtube Rhett leaves them 
And then they go back to Tara and you see some also really great shots. Uh, Such great shots. Like the shot with her hiding under the bridge while yeah, it's like raining while and they're holding the baby and everything. The right? baby though has, <laughs> this is a little weird. The baby was covered by a blanket and I swear to God, like you were probably, that baby was probably being water, waterboarded <laughs> because. Yeah, because they were like half soaked, soaked in yeah, water because of rain. Yeah. yeah. Very irresponsible on Melanie's part. Uh, but so they are going through these like deserted towns in the South. There are just dead men everywhere. The horses that they're that is carrying them is like on its last legs. And when they uh, so they get to Tara and actually Scarlet whips the horse to like, keep going. We're at Tara and and the horse dies. <laughs> Literally, she beats it to death. And this, this is another great shot. So they go into 12 Oaks, which is Ashley's home. And it's just Scarlet who goes inside. And Scarlet is in this big mansion that is completely destroyed. And that's where the whole civil war started for her that you know that's where the barbecue was so to have so to remember that so you have this like so they had the beginning where it was so beautiful and colorful and full of all these people in this way of life versus an hour later in the movie and here's scarlet standing in that same place and it's empty it's destroyed it's this whole way of life gone so upon her return scarlet finds tara deserted except for her father her sisters and former slaves mammy and pork scarlet learns that her mother had just died of typhoid fever and her father has lost his mind because of it with Tara pillaged by union troops in the field untended Scarlet vows to ensure the survival of herself and her family. And that's where the first half ends. And then it ends on this a huge emotional, big, you know, it's not like a long monologue, but it, it's, it's juicy and meaty for an actress to, to dive into. And, um, so this is what so Scarlet she just learns her mother had just died, her father the man of the house is completely gone. So now she has to like pick up the pieces like immediately she's like I have to be in charge of Tara, and it's a it's actually a cool little sequence. So she's walking down the stairs and going to walk outside. You had Prissy questioning her of what they're going to do, Mammy's questioning her about like the food they have to get, and then you have Pork you know asking questions too. And what Pork says is one of those like cringe painful moments uh he goes who's going to milk that cow miss scarlet we as houseworkers so this is just a question you know this is something that scarlet has to hear before the end of the film and just a nice little reminder that there is slaves and it, it's still this whole way of life that is still there despite the confederacy falling so scarlet picks up a uh, a carrot out of the ground which you would never suspect miss scarlet o'hara to be eating filthy uh vegetables carrot, yeah, dirty, yeah right out of the ground which so she gets sick and then it's like it's pretty dark so i don't know they didn't want to light her up i guess for this yeah there's the sun setting in the background yeah yeah so it's this pretty dark shot and she goes as god is my witness as god is my witness they're not going to lick me i'm going to live through this and when it's all over i'll never be hungry again no nor any of my folk if i have to lie steal cheat or kill as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. The music swells up. It's this big silhouette shot intermission. Yeah, beautiful. There's so much to break down here. I need to go back a little bit just to talk about her returning to home. So there's three main shots of showing off Tara, right? It's the opening. Uh, right after the opening scene, we have the reveal of Tara. And it's a beautiful introduction, the gorgeous green grass, the beautiful white architecture. It's beautiful. Everything's so gorgeous and pristine. 
And then when she returns, it's like haunting. Like the cinematography is completely different. Everything's kind of like dark and blue from like moonlight, like we spoke about. Like the first kind of reveal shot of O'Hara, like looking at the destroyed house, is is beautiful. It's like so traumatic. Like you see her face change, and it's like this amazing performance by Vivian Lee. And she enters into the house, and you immediately get uncomfortable. There's like this underlying tension, and you know something is off but they're just like not telling her and like the slaves in the house are just not speaking up and telling her what's wrong and then she kind of like they point into a room basically and she walks in and it's really it's kind of disturbing it's really disturbing imagery of her dead mom with like a veil over her head like it's like a straight out of a horror film just like laying on a flat table just in the corner of the room and yeah it's, it's really heartbreaking it's from like a filmic standpoint it's it didn't really affect me too much because we really barely know anything about her mom and it, you know mammy has been kind of the motherly figure throughout this film so i don't really have like direct attachments to her but it's more seeing scarlet's reaction and yeah. seeing her and like you really feel for her and you see just how destroyed like this is her home she loves it so much and it's just completely obliterated and i mean the production diet is so well done and yeah, she's like almost a different person by this point. Yeah, so she's she's been completely broken down. So the beginning of the film, we have this 16-year-old Scarlett O'Hara who is loves life. She's living the best life she can. She's living on her plantation with her mother, her father, her sisters, and, and their slaves. And everything's just a great old time. She thinks she's going to marry Ashley. Then the first straw that's going to start to break the camel's back is, oh, Ashley's not going to marry you. Oh, okay, fine. I'm not going to marry Ashley. And uh, even though I'm still going to try and get him. And then she has to live through the whole war and all that comes with it. Becoming a widow at first, having to deal with the, the burning of Atlanta, which is probably hu- huge trauma. There's so much that she had to witness having to work in those hospitals to, to care for the soldiers. So she's been put through the ringer. And I think that this monologue, it's so interesting because I don't think she's a religious person at all. And she uses the line as God is my witness. So she's not saying hey, God, like, you know, with God, I'm going to do this. No, as God is my witness, I'm going to steal. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to kill. I'm going to do what I can to survive. Because that's what she's now learned is that she learned that she has to fend for herself. She has to be a different person. She has to be the breaking the, the mold of what a woman has to be is completely broken for her. She has to take charge. She has to take charge of Tara. Her father's not going to be there for her. Any of the men that she thought would be there for her have not been. It's all been her. She and which is empowering. It's huge. It's powerful. It is so powerful to see it. To see a woman at, at this time do it, and, and even now, it, it's it's great because there's so much for them to sink into. Um, so as God, so it's, so this whole like religious aspect. She's not a religious person at the beginning of the film. Her family's praying, and she's not even praying. She's just talking about wanting to get Ashley, and so she's using this and. It's just such a it's such a beautiful sequence, and it and it it ends the the first half on the, on this huge note, and uh, it's it's really good. Let me ask you this: so we haven't really spoken too much about Scarlett's monologues, but she does have like multiple monologues throughout this film, and this is probably the most prominent, and memorable one because it's her you know vowing to succeed and overcome, and it's really emotional and powerful, and it's probably my favorite like just spoken monologue. It's something we have to acknowledge that it's like so unnatural for someone in like a great time of trauma to just like speak up and fist up in the air and like it's it's so melodramatic and and intense but it really works in this moment in particular just because she's like broken like she officially meets her end I, i found it 
a little odd that she kind of eats the carrot, but it kind of it makes perfect sense because she's she's literally like so hungry. They don't even tell tell you this. It's but been it's like clear. two or three days. Since yeah, she it's had clear that meal. she's like probably barely eaten the past couple of days on this journey, and she's just like I'm literally eat this dirty ass carrot. Like I don't even care. Like as long as my family can eat and like Tara's back to where it was, like it'll be my success. But Ben, I want to he- hear your thoughts on some of the earlier monologues like for instance when ashley leaves after going back to war like she gives this like big monologue about how like ashley will still be mine and like i just rolled my eyes at a lot of those other monologues i think to me the easiest way to explain all that is that it's inner monologue probably from the novel exactly and the book yeah so that that's that's the the best explanation i probably get for it it is odd it it's also just like that time like that was just the style of that we're just going to give exposition. We're just going to give exactly what we're thinking, what that character is supposed to be thinking and feeling. We're just going to outwardly say it. And um, I like it at certain times. I, I think it works well for this movie, though, in particular because it, you you get it's such a good insight into Scarlet and, and really knowing her as a character. And, again, it's based off of a novel. So, and it was such a well-loved novel. We haven't even talked about Yeah, well, like, well let's talk about that yeah. because – the novel is so renownedly famous and even Clark Gable was like so nervous at playing Rhett because people loved Rhett and he just didn't want to let people down to this to this kind of image that they had in his head. And I think that's how a lot of people felt like Vivian Lee was a, a British actress and she was not really the main person that was chosen for this film. She kind of like became the lead at, at the very end of, of casting and they found her and they kind of brought her over and, uh, even the author of the book was just kind of annoyed in a way that she was not American, that she wasn't from the South, that they're bringing a British actress to come over here and play someone who's a Southerner. And I wanted to talk about quickly a little bit about fan service in that way, where there's so many people that love this book that they want those aspects. And they're probably like hearing that the inner monologue of Scarlet. And they also want to hear that. So at in this film, filmic kind of moment in time we're still not as like maybe as subtle as what we're used to nowadays so we kind of have to use this and translate that into dialogue and kind of profess but in a way that's like early like fan service in a way fan service for people that love this book and really love these characters it's fan service to give them aspects from the book just directly to film so i think it's kind of passable in the way you can kind of get behind that and i want to go on a little bit of a tangent related to fan service because to me, I really don't think this is even really one movie. I mean, it is one film. It's labeled as one movie that's four hours long. But to me, this is really just two movies put together. And it's two movies about the same character. And I think you could have easily had this have been like a two-parter movie. And it reminds me most recently, even though it's so drastically different with Infinity War and Endgame, where that could have been a four-hour movie. It wasn't because they made way more money by splitting it into two, and that really wasn't like a thought back in 1938 while they were making this film. It wasn't like a thought to like, oh, we'll make more money. It's like that's kind of like an unfinished product in a way. Even though I think there's two drastically different stories, they both have a – Scarlet has an arc between – the first half and the second half. And I really think you could break these into two different movies and and enjoy them either in a separate sitting or just kind of enjoy them as part one and part two. Yeah, well, I actually did that last night and this morning. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it 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 totally is there. There, it's such a big deal. Uh, no one thought that this was really a filmable thing. Selznick took a huge risk. It 
which is kind of what happens with Lord of the Rings 50 years later. Uh, but that's a, that'll be for a different episode. Uh, but yeah, but so the novel was originally released in 30, 1936. It supposedly took Margaret Mitchell 10 years to write the whole thing. Uh, and Selznick bought the rights for the film for $50,000 in July of 1936. So only a month later after its release, did he buy it? And the $50,000 was a huge deal back then. That, that was extraordinary for a, a, a new novel, but it was an instant success. It reached gross prices of a million dollars within that same year. And then when the film was released, there were around um, one and a half million copies already sold of the book. Uh, and it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1937, which we said in our previous episode of Worthy that the, uh, is one of the films to win the Pulitzer and be a Best Picture winner, the first being You Can't Take It With You the year before. Um, yeah, so the novel was huge and, and it was very well known. Uh, the casting of Scarlet, uh, this is also from AFI. Uh, there was, I think it was over 1,400 uh, women who were cast uh, to, for, for Scarlet. Uh, let me read off the list that AFI has as the list of big name actresses who were considered. You had Jean Arthur, Diana Barrymore, Joan Bennett, uh, Margaret Churchill, Claudette Colbert, Joan Crawford, Bette, uh, Bette Davis, uh, Betty Davis, I mean, Francis D., Ellen Drew, using the name Terry Ray at that time, Irene Dunn, Jean Harlow, Catherine Hepburn, Marion Hopkins, Carol Lombard, Suzanne Hayward, uh, under her real name, Edith Mariner, uh, Boots Mallory, Joanne Sayers, Norma Shear, Margaret Sullivan, Margaret uh, Talishet, uh, Lana Turner, Claire Trevor, Arlene Whelan, and Loretta Young were all considered, uh, along with Vivian Lee, along with thousands of other women, uh, for this role. It would have, get man, uh, Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable combination would have been fucking fantastic. Joan Crawford probably would have killed this role. But we end up with Vivian Lee, and I'm not saying that like, oh, we end up with Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee is a, a I want to talk about her when we talk about the Oscars, more about her personal life, but she had a very tragic life. Um, but to kind of talk about this now, this is the longest performance by any actor, any, any person to win a lead award uh, at the Oscars. Her performance, do you, did you read my note on this? Do you know the number? If you had to guess, how long do you think Scarlett O'Hara was on screen for the total runtime? Mm, screen time. Yeah. If you just had to guess. I would say three hours and 20 minutes? No. Uh, it's actually less than that. Uh, but two hours and 23 minutes and 32 seconds is the supposed number. Whoever has stopwatched that, I congrats. Like, kudos to you for giving us that number. Uh, but yeah, so she was on screen for two hours and 23 minutes of the film. So you, I guess you can kind of wonder, well, how the hell is there another hour and a half of stuff that she wasn't in? It's just stuff that fills up the screen. It just happens over time. Uh, so she has the longest performance and she's only one of two people and both of them are actresses to win an Oscar for a uh, performance of two hours plus, And the other being Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl in 1968. She won at 41st Academy Awards. And Lee also has the sixth longest performance for anyone for her second Academy Award for a streetcar named Desire at an hour, 33 minutes, and four seconds. It is truly remarkable. Both of those performances. Have you ever seen a streetcar named Desire? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's another amazing film that I would love to talk about but did not win Best Picture. And so for her to give – so she actually gave a four-hour performances to win two Oscars in total. 
and it's it's very it's remarkable and it's it's so cool and it's just something to really think about that, that she has to carry this film so this first half she just this is all her it's all on scarlet soldiers she she has to do everything she can vivian's power to give this great performance which she i i think she does and we can talk about that when we finish talking about the film in, in its entirety but after this first half i'm actually really impressed and i'm more impressed the second time and was even more impressed the third time watching the first half and i thought she really did a great job yeah wrapping up the first half here i think it's it's something that we haven't really addressed but this is the first film that just has a woman as the lead character and it's a film that like actually wants to dive deep into a, a female's perspective like every film so far as you know you maybe have like you can't take it with you or you have a lot of female characters and some of them are kind of the leadish characters you have other films that you know that have some prominent side characters but there's not been like a single film so far that one best picture that really is just this dominant female lead where they give so much time and it's the most complex character that we've probably seen so far on film obviously you have the extremely long runtime to kind of make that more likely and just give more screen time to kind of break her character down but I think it just is we have to note just how significant this is and the fact that it will go on and, and win so many awards is is really significant to just the industry and giving uh, women more perspective and I know a lot of people while this movie was being made they kind of looked at it as like a quote-unquote like woman's film because it's about like uh, romance and how like there's so much women and it's about like really fancy dresses and beautiful like artistic uh, locations so it, you could see at the time in the industry probably the producers and some people in uh, re the reporting and kind of the news industry for film that they were still kind of looking down at films that really focus on women but this is a really significant film and I think it's just notable of just how much time they really give her to shine on screen so that's the end of the first half of Gone with the Wind we recorded for a pretty long time talking about this movie and we just felt for our listeners, it might just be easier for you guys to hear this in two parts. So stay tuned for when the second half of the, this movie and this podcast is going to be released. Thanks for listening to the first half of Worthy on Gone with the Wind. Thanks for listening to Worthy, a breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.